Hey everybody, welcome to the Grace in the Gray podcast where we use the black and white of scripture to speak truth into the gray areas of culture. Today we're back with Rick and Ben and this is episode number 12. We're already here and this one's going to be special because we will have two parts. So the first part is justice and mercy or as we talked about before, having a just God who is also a merciful God. So I think with my first question is, what are some examples of God being a just God? What comes to mind? I mean, I, you go, big boy. I never do the first one. <laughs> and what does it mean? I mean the, what does it mean to be? Yeah, a just if, God means that we get the punishment that is justly re- deserved for our actions, or the flip side of that coin also being true is justice. It's you get the reward justly due for the actions that you've committed. Now, I think that almost all of what we would discuss for us as fallen, broken humanity, as you read through the beginning narrative, first three chapters of the Bible, we find all of us broken. So all of us are on the not good side of justice um, when it comes to our relation with God, at least initially pre-Jesus, pre-faith, all of those kind of things. Um, and so I would say, the, I mean, the first and most glaring, glaringly obvious, although it's become a more contested, and I don't really understand that in entirety, Ben may be able to speak to a little bit more of that, is, the, is hell, right? Is the creation of hell, of this place of eternal damnation, separation from God as the just penalty for choosing the temporary life that we live here to remain separated from him, to live outside of his bounds, to live outside of his love. And so that would be, the, I guess, the first example and maybe the biggest, most glaring example, although there are certainly other examples of God's justice. Add to it, Ben? Uh, I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind when I hear about like the justice of God is um, kind of the same struggle that Martin Luther had that was really formative in his faith in the long run, but I'm still kind of in many ways exist in the struggle with understanding what the justice of God is because he read that passage in Romans and it it struck this unbelievable fear in him, uh, this terror at the idea that there was a God who would repay um, every injustice that had been dispensed at his hands, Martin Luther's hands, uh, with a payment in kind. And that was a really scary idea for him, and I, I find it pretty terrifying as well. Um, so, yeah, I, that's maybe a little bit more on a personal level than a philosophical level, that it's, a, it's an idea that I, I still reckon with, and that may be an important part of the process that doesn't need to be rushed through, but it's definitely something that I'm still working out. Mm-hmm. So does God's wrath play into the justice, or are those two completely se- separate things? Yeah, I mean, I think God's wrath is an outworking of that justice, right? Especially for those of us, and the Bible's going to describe those of us pre-Jesus or who don't have our faith in Jesus and his reconciling work on our behalf. The Bible describes us as children of wrath, right? Like the just reward that we have, the only thing that we deserve is wrath and death. Uh, I guess wrath made manifest in death. Um, And then an eternal punishment as a result of being under God's wrath is going to be the position that we're described at. And uh, I, I thought of a question as you were talking, Ben, and I just want to get your input on this. As you think of like Martin Luther's thing and this like unbelievable gravity that he feels sitting under the idea, the notion of God's wrath just as a philosophical thing or a theological thing or whatever adjective you want to use for him describing it. It feels like we don't carry that weight, and, and, and I, don't, I don't even know who I'm addressing when I say we. Maybe culture as a whole doesn't feel that weight when we think about God's justice, right? Like we are, the just nature of God is almost like this 
it's almost easily dismissed. And, I, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever given any thought to why maybe that's, or maybe I'm making that up in my head, I don't know, but that's the that's the seeming sitting place for most of culture versus the person like Martin Luther who gets to the place that this mm-hmm. thing is horrifying. Do you mean do you mean specifically for people that are that share our worldview or people specifically for people who don't or for everyone like for for who are you wondering that? For yeah, who? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, I think for both sides of it because I think I think it's true for both sides of it like I don't see I I haven't had many conversations with believers that take a turn in that Martin Luther direction. Like this yeah. is horrifying for me to consider what this could mean or what this does mean. And I haven't had many I haven't had seemingly any conversations with believers that is or with non believers rather, the people that don't share our worldview. Yeah. Um that land in that spot. Well in the, uh part of the argument that Martin Luther would go on to formulate as a result of his fear of this idea of the justice of God would be what we got out of the Reformation, which is sola fide, you're, you're saved by faith alone, um, and the authority for knowing that comes only from Scripture, so on and so forth, everything you know about the Protestant Refor- Reformation. Um, as far as like why somebody who doesn't share uh, the worldview that we have, uh, particularly in reference to like an ethical system, like it... It wouldn't be surprising that they wouldn't they wouldn't f- carry or feel the weight of uh, the justice of God, um, and there's actually it makes me think of a, a psychological occurrence that happens in in humanity as a whole, which is this tendency to to always consider others uh, morally inferior and always consider yourself morally superior. And one of the ways that you do that is by continually making allowances with some kind of like mitigating or ameliorating factors for the reason you make the decisions you make in life. Um, so in that sense, like we, we have a predisposition psychologically to continually find reasons why we do the things we do, even when we don't like the things that, that we do. Um, so the, and we talked about this before we actually talked about it earlier today. Like you, you're not building your ethical system based on some kind of authoritative force that's external to you, you're building your ethics based on the decisions you've already made in, sure. in the past. And so for, for that reason, I think people that, that don't have a shared worldview with us wouldn't feel the weight because they don't, they don't recognize the weight as being something that's extant, right? It doesn't exist to them. For, for believers inside the church, this is, this is something that I've really been struggling with because I look at passages like, Matthew 5 with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he's he's going through a lot of these things that people know from uh, the Old Testament are directives from God, do this, don't do this kind of stuff. And he's reinterpreting them, and you'd think, especially given the fact that it's Jesus, that as he reinterprets them, you'd think he would make them gentler or easier or more yeah. but he, he literally does the opposite right he says makes it impossible don't don't commit adultery also if you've ever thought about committing adultery that's enough yeah. you've already committed adultery um and we can get into why that's actually that is in many ways actually a more a more gracious reading um depending on how you understand that passage but the point is that um he's reinterpreting them in a way that that almost makes them more and more difficult. And I think our tendency is when we read passages like that, especially from Jesus, is to read um, Paul into those passages. Now, a reading of Paul can inform your understanding of what Jesus has to say, but you can't read Paul's theology into what Jesus is saying first. First, you have to read the words and the the surrounding context. And I, I think the call is pretty clear. He's calling us to righteousness. 
but I think we lose a lot of that. Um, if we get too focused, I don't know. I'm not even sure exactly how to say this. Cause I don't want to say if you get too focused on the grace of God, yeah. but if you, if you consider the grace of God, the end of your developmental narrative. Yeah. So and God I'm, has been gracious. I'm, I'm clean. That's the end of yeah, my. And I think you arc. get some of that, right? Like that, that mentality, even in like Pauline theology, like his, should we continue to abuse grace, right? Like yeah. it's almost like Paul, Paul preaches, and then you see theologians, Martin Luther, all of these Reformation theologians that come out and preach grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Yeah. And so all of those kind of things. But then there's this consistent reminder that the call is still the same. And I think there's this danger pre, pre-Jesus, if that's you and you're listening and you're like doing it, like you never – if you're the justifier of your own moral standard, like you're the person that sets that standard for yourself, that you never need grace because why would you? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like you've, I have the ability to justify anything that I do that people could perceive as wrong because I don't perceive it that way. I've justified it. But then for the believer, I think there's, we do a really good job. And I think a lot of times, maybe this is giving us too much the benefit of the doubt inadvertently. Of dodging the stuff of the Bible that we don't want to that we don't want to sit under, or at least not. Yeah. So like the call of righteousness being yeah. an example of yeah. that. Yeah. Or like like the the continued need for grace post justification. Like mm-hmm. I, like it's it's not the continued need for justification, but justification doesn't mean like go do whatever you want to do. Like that's Pauline's charge, right? That's the Pauline charge of like, hey. We don't sin, continue to sin that grace may abound. We we recognize the call to righteousness, and the grace that we've received is the fuel for our effort to pursue that righteousness. And when we fall short, we fling ourselves back on that grace, begging for forgiveness. And we don't lose our justification, but we lose. I think one of the cool things about repentance and that whole process is you lose your not not you lose you regain that reminder of the grace that you needed and still need. Yeah, and I but I think. Part of the struggle with that process of learning what it looks like to be, how would you say it, to be gracious with yourself even when you sin versus being intentional about what your repentance looks like. Part of the part of the difficulty with living that out and recognizing that there's grace enough no matter how many shortcomings you have is um, the distinguishing factor seems to be if you, uh, a lot of th- times the word like habitually is used, like if you habitually sin, if it, if it more and more becomes a part of who you are, if you do it without a recognition of the fact that it's bad for you and you don't have an authentic uh, experience of repentance somewhere along the way. But again, the problem with that is, or the struggle with that is, we as believers are also afflicted with the desire to create moral justifications for mm-hmm. what we do and consider ourselves moral, morally superior uh, and others morally inferior. So when we sin, after we've sinned, we have a tendency to judge our own repentance as being fully authentic. And we also make an allowance for ourselves of the fact that like, I'm not doing it habitually because I really meant the repentance last time. And now I'm just, I'm doing my best, but every now and then I stumble. I didn't, I didn't think about this as being a repetition of sin. I just, you know, I, I fell or I made a mistake and those are all true. And I, the danger of this is that I don't want to create this idea that, this idea that the expectation is that you be righteous, but that's the call. So I think the call maybe looks like very painfully stumbling towards looking a little bit more righteous than you did. 
Um, yeah, which I think is what makes which makes the other characteristic that you opened up kind of to mention as we got started, the merciful attribute of God all the more beautiful when you understand like the call doesn't change based on your ability to live up to the call, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like God's up there because he's just, he can't go, well, and this is, this is, I guess if I start, my mom's standard for me growing up in school was just just do the best that you can. And so I wasn't an A-plus honor roll student, right? Like that wasn't me. Like in math, I was grinding out a C. Mm-hmm. And like I never got disciplined for a C because the standard was in our home when it came to academics was do the best that you can. Now, God's standard is not some fluid mm-hmm. do the best that you can, which is the Matthew 5, which is all of the all of the Sermon on the Mount is this reminder that this is the standard and even the best that you can, it's kind of the beginning of it, even if you don't physically commit adultery, you still overstepped, right? Mm-hmm. You've still gotten close enough to it that you haven't lived up to the perfect moral standard. And God being completely just has to respond, right? There has to be something. And so we kind of open that up looking at the ways that he does that. And there's a variety of ways, but the main one being that people would run to would be the hell, eternity separated from him or even temporary the feeling of brokenness in the world that we live in now being another example of that just justice flowing from God, but then it brings in the the need for mercy, right? Yeah. What and, and we've kind of shifted from mercy to grace and then back to it. So mercy is I always mess this up. Not giving us what we deserve. <laughs> and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mm-hmm. And so when you said that when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount and he kind of adds the extra to the adultery part, that that is even more gracious. Can you dig into that? Yeah. I figured that was going to be a question that came up because it doesn't <laughs> seem to be on its face. Is right. You're thinking, right? Um, and it definitely doesn't because what it seems like is that the the expectations are getting even more strenuous and then later he'll go on to say, take my yoke upon you for my uh, yoke is easy and my burden is light, whatever that passage says. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I misquoted that, but, um, but I think what he's revealing is the fact that, uh, well, if you take a step back and consider, consider the directives that God lays out as something that's ultimately intended for your good and not for um, restriction or to limit you in the world. Um, then when he, when he interprets like the just using adultery again as like kind of the controlling example, um, I think it's pretty apparent that like, I mean, think about your life and your marriage. Like, if you sin in your mind over and over again repetitively, it just as much leads to destruction as sinning physically. Like, if you're unfaithful to your spouse in your mind over and over again, serially, um, or even just once, mm-hmm. like the the harm can already be done. Yeah. Um, and again, if you understand those directives from God as something that's intended to protect and hem you in uh, into a place that's safe, then the idea is uh, don't go that way. Right. That way leads to destruction, and I don't want that for you. Um, kind of goes I back to our boundaries. You and I want you to, yeah, and yeah. I think that's even it. like I even find a deeper grace in it just as kind of your type A logical thinker, right? Like the more impossible that you make it, right, the, the more impossible this standard becomes, which I really appreciate about the – the Sermon on the Mountain, then Jesus does that, hey, take my yoke on you because it's easy and it's light. Like, okay, these these two things seem an unbelievable contradiction until you realize that ultimately what Jesus is going to call you to is to die, right? Not And 
yeah, ultimately we're all going to die physically, but first and foremost, that's a spiritual death. That's the death to this this innate desire that exists in me. And one of the things that I battle against is a, I, I would just call myself a performer, right? Like as somebody who not like dances or sings, that's not my <laughs> giftedness at all, but like as somebody who played sports, was an athlete, did all of that kind of stuff, my innate desire inside of me bent evilly is to perform up to a standard. Mm-hmm. And then when I read it, that feels like unbelievably bad news initially until I recognize that Jesus's ultimate calling is to die to my performance being the measure by which I'm justified, right? And so it's, okay, this isn't going to work for me. And it's an, it's an invitation to stop trying to make this be the thing that works for you, to to come to me, to, to pick up my yoke, to to lay down your life and find your life in my sacrificial death, not in your striving, I guess to quote some striving after the wind that you'll never that you'll never catch. Yeah. What is there something that comes to your mind when you think of the word justice, especially in relation to God? Well, right now, I mean, in culture, I just think I automatically go to social justice. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that right now I'm doing the Bible recap. I didn't start in January. We started late. <laughs> but um, just reading through Genesis and Exodus and even Job, we went, we, we skipped around because we're trying to go chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to the suffering in part two, but um, just trying to balance the – and I've heard other people say this, and then I, I think that maybe it's not the right thing to say, but the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus and yeah. trying to make the two mm-hmm. fit. And I, and I don't think that it has to, to fit in this box that I have in my head. And I like you said earlier, sometimes there's mystery that we just have to accept. But mm-hmm. y'all can talk, speak to that, the that, Old Testament God yeah, that's and the New been Testament a, Jesus. That's been a point of contention since Reformation days because it was Martian, right, that we, tried to Yeah, but that separate. was way pre uh, – that was like early church fathers, like yeah, proto-Orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah, and so Martian that tried to separate the two out and be like, hey, these are two for, yeah, for definitively exactly different. And I think we – at, to our own detriment, we assume that this is something that's like an, a, a problem that's afflicted Christianity or Christian ideology in modernity because we either assume that, number one, it's just uh, New Age spiritualists that are saying um, they can't have a wrathful God, like it's something new, or on the other side, like we've evolved past the need for the Old Testament God because mm-hmm. we have a much greater understanding of uh, human culture and love and um, all those things. But I think we, to our own detriment, because I think what you realize when you realize that there was this guy named Marcion that was trying to do exactly that, and then um, he, he was eventually excommunicated from the Orthodox Church. And so even that early, we're talking about like 150 years uh, after the birth of Jesus, it was important enough for the church fathers to say, Yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> these are... It's very, very important that we keep these two ideas of God together. But I also think you you undervalue just how how much those two things, at least on the face, seem to live in tension. If you just say, um, we should split them up. Yeah. I guess the mad God of the Old Testament is not the happy, forgiving God of the New Testament. And I think that's yeah. that's kind of like this. That kind of that thought process is one of the reasons that we started this podcast. Right, was to try to help people understand. Hey, while not every issue in life is black and white and it doesn't say thou shall and thou shalt not in Scripture, if you're faithful to the Scripture in its entirety or you seek to be as faithful as you can to the Scripture in its entirety, the black and white that is there often will help you inform, often fully inform, I would argue, 
how you choose to view the gray areas of culture. And so how you choose to wrestle with a God who is completely loving, com- completely just, but also completely gracious and completely merciful. And I think that that's, that's so key. And it, it, it's just always interesting to me that it's, you know, to quote Solomon again, there's nothing new, right? Like we're not, this discussion isn't the first time this has ever happened. And even this notion of there's two gods, right, that are somehow part of the same God, but completely separate and independent of each other. And it's that dangerous game that we play of read the Bible the way you want <laughs> or read your read yourself into it or however you dance that dance, right? Like mm-hmm. read it to be what you want it to be. And I think that's one of the great pieces of unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. And I didn't even know we were going there today, but I'm, I'm so grateful to do it because I think it does such a great job. Jesus does such a great job of going, wait, wait, wait. You Not only am I not coming to to expunge that to do away with that i'm actually coming that you might see that that wasn't even the fullness of it of the standard you need a better understanding of the standard so that you can better understand your need from a for a rescue like your Mm -hmm. need for redemption would you say that jesus is another example his death on the cross is another example of god's justice yeah i think that that's the full and total personification of both of the characteristics that we're looking at simultaneously, which I which I contend is what makes the gospel so unbelievably beautiful. I have chills right, right now. Thank yeah, you. Like, mm-hmm. like God in all of his justice chose to express all of his wrath on his perfect son so that God in all of his mercy could pour it out on three people sitting around a table with headphones on <laughs> trying to figure out a little bit more the unbelievable beauty of the mystery of the gospel and the life that it calls us yeah, to. Yeah, the, the most common response to that, though, that I hear from people um, who are from either a different faith background or uh, maybe no particular traditional faith background mm-hmm. is, uh, if he's so powerful, why couldn't he just not, right? Yeah. Why Why not just not pour out any wrath. Yeah. Cancel your wrath. Turn it off. Yeah. Hit the off switch. Undo it. <laughs> yeah. Um you guys have any thoughts on that? Because then he's not just. And if he's not just, then how do we put our trust in him? If you know it it's steadfast, it never changes. Yeah. And that's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I think that that's the 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 easy first part of it is like Justice is only made more beautiful when you have the flip side of the coin, right? Mm-hmm. Like the justice is made more beautiful by the mercy and the mercy is made more beautiful by the justice, right? And so I think being able to completely embody both of those things. And then I always I always appreciate this too. And I, I can't remember it was Francis Chan or Matt Chandler, somebody, one of those guys I heard listening to. And it's like, it's if you ever get to a spot that you're worshiping a God that you fully understand and completely can explain to the ground, mm-hmm. that's a really bad God, right? Like you've made a really, really small image of a really, really big thing that Scripture is going to teach us is is at moments outside of what we understand, higher mm-hmm. than what we know and beyond what we can comprehend. Yeah. So I think trying to get him to get to that spot where it's, well, just turn it off. Yeah. There's a lot of human reasoning to a divine issue. Yeah. And then thinking about Jesus on the cross as an example of justice, then you have the thief on the cross next to him, and he shows his mercy. Mm-hmm. The thief on the cross is is dying and says, hey, what about me? 
I don't know what exactly says, but I think that's it. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> what? Like, Yo, what about me? A hail Mary, and <laughs> Help you know. Brother out. <laughs> so, Please. I don't know. I love talking about things like this, but I think this is a really good stopping point for us to pause and come back in two weeks with part two. So part two is going to be suffering and prosperity, and I think we can pick up with the suffering on the cross. I hope you guys prosper until we get to that spot. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Be sure to check out the show notes. We have a lot of scripture references um, and a couple other things like Bible recap and also a way to follow us on Instagram for extra content. Thanks. Thanks.